Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wigan. I am one-third of the team at TumbleDye Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to simulate the arc and tension of a three-act story within the framework of a tabletop RPG. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. Well, after a month of, well, not exactly rest, but a little time doing something else, I am back. So many thanks to Andy for picking up the slack while I was furiously accumulating words during National Novel Writing Month. I had not attempted Nano since 2013, and had not won since 2011, so it was quite an exhilarating experience. I have spent a lot of my effort on gaming, GMing, and collaborative storytelling this year, so it was interesting to step away from that and back into sole authorship for a bit. If you're wondering what the heck National Novel Writing Month is, well, I'll tell you. Basically, it's a challenge, a personal challenge, to write 50,000 words on a single project during the month of November. It's been around for quite some time, and I've participated several times over the years. Winning just means hitting that magical 50,000 word mark, which is the minimum technical length for a novel. I've won a few of the times that I participated, including that last time, in 2011. If this sounds like a challenge for you, check out nanorimo.org. That's N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O dot org. They do a couple of other events during the year, and heck, there's always 2021. If you like to write, but have struggled to finish your projects... I found it to be a helpful challenge to actually propel you forward and stop allowing the brain to do so much editing along the way. And, if you're wondering, yes, I won. The reason that I decided to participate in Nano this year is directly related to the theme of today's episode. In October, I read a very interesting book called The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carriger. It showed me something that I had sort of perceived about stories, but had never really fully understood. I am looking forward to sharing some of the insights I've had. Basically everything I know about this topic comes from that book by Ms. Carriger, and I highly, highly recommend that you go read it. If you have any interest in how stories are made and put together. Even if you're just a consumer who likes to understand things better, Or if you're a little dissatisfied with mainstream stories and don't quite know why, it's well worth the read. I'll put a link in the show notes. For the purposes of today's discussion, I'll summarize the concepts, but I am decidedly not going to crib any of Ms. Carriger's details. Her book will explain these concepts way better and in far more depth than I will, but I'll make sure you've got the basics to follow along with why I've made it the topic of this episode. Once we've established a baseline, I'm going to talk about how we can relate these concepts to the topic of RPGs. Namely, how we construct stories for our players that identify the experience they want to have as part of the game. 
and then work to fulfill those expectations, even if we have a diverse group of players who all want different things. Three quick notes. First, I am still in the process of working through all of this, and I'm hoping to make it coherent. (laughs) This is my first real attempt at distilling these new concepts. We're in exploration mode, frontier land, friends. Second, this discussion will be talking about the hero's journey and the heroine's journey in order to compare and contrast them. For the sake of simplicity, when I talk about heroes, they'll be he, and when I talk about heroines, they'll be she, but, and I cannot stress this enough. The actual gender of the character does not matter. You can absolutely have female heroes and male heroines in fiction, and we're actually going to talk about some of them as examples. And third and last, fair warning, this episode contains liberal spoilers about the plot and themes of the following television shows, Scrubs, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Angel. You have been warned. Also, if you haven't watched those, I recommend them. Ready? Here we go. Part 1. Understanding the Journeys At this point, I think we're all pretty familiar with the hero's journey. It's baked into most of the media we consume these days. But just in case you're not as steeped in meta-storytelling as I am, here's the high level. The hero starts the story doing something of little consequence. He receives a call to adventure, but turns it down. Something propels him forward into the adventure anyway. A wise mentor probably teaches him something. The hero and his friends get into a bunch of trouble. The hero gets them back out of trouble. At the end, the hero loses something or someone important to them, possibly the mentor. That loss causes him to realize that he had the power in him all along to succeed, or it changes him so that he now has that power. The hero wins. The end. You can probably think of quite a few things that fit this structure. Pretty much any of the superhero origin stories from Marvel all follow this. Star Wars might be the most iconic example. For more on this, there's a ton of literature out there, but the most famous is Joseph Campbell's work on the subject. If you want to write or tell stories that feel iconic, this is a good structure to familiarize yourself with. The critical piece, the crux of the hero's journey, is that when the hero succeeds, he succeeds alone. The power is within him, and it is up to him to save the day. Keep that little nugget in your head. The hero's journey is also very important to us as game masters and RPG players. Because most of the people we game with are going to be most familiar with this structure, they just sort of expect it. If we divert into telling stories with an arc using our RPG systems, and out of just dungeon crawling. Once there are NPCs that matter a villain that matters, and the story begins to take a bend to it that leads toward a conclusion, this is the structure that your players are probably going to expect. Well, most of them anyway. We'll talk about all of this more in a bit. Okay, so that's the one that we can probably name a zillion examples of. Now, what's all this about a heroine's journey? This is the part where Gail Carriger's book is so important, so you really, really should read it. Here's the critical beats that you need to know, and this one won't feel quite so familiar. Something happens to the heroine's familial structure. 
She looks for someone to understand, but no one really does. She leaves a position of power to remedy the problem. The heroine begins a search to solve the problem. She begins to construct a new familial network. There is a cycle of the heroine being alone, in isolation, and weak, and then back to being buoyed by the allies that she is gathering. Eventually, the heroine and her allies, symbolically or literally, descend into the underworld for their goal. They arise again with the heroine calling the shots while her allies do amazing things. They win. The end. This one's a bit harder to get your head around, right? Let's look at some examples, which are not the ones that Ms. Carriger uses, so that hopefully this starts to feel a little more familiar. The first one I want to talk about is Scrubs. Yes, the TV show from the mid-2000s starring Zach Braff, Donald Faison, Sarah Chalk, and John C. McGinley, the one about doctors. How is this a heroine story, I hear you ask? What does this have to do with journeys? Isn't this just a heartbreakingly funny comedy, aside from being a masterpiece of television? I might be a little biased. So the interesting thing about Scrubs is that when you look at what we have above, I think it's impossible to come to any other conclusion than that the main character, Zach Braff's Dr. John Dorian, or JD, is a heroine. This is sort of what I meant about the gender thing and how it's not important. It's also interesting because it also serves as an origin story. J.D. can't do the first couple of steps in the heroine's journey because he doesn't have any power to descend from when the story begins. If you look at the arc of the series, though, J.D. is constantly seeking friends, friendships, and allies. His familial structure is broken, his home life was tough, and his dad was never really there. And so he's constantly looking for someone to be that rock that he was missing. When he becomes an intern, he latches on to the tough but tender Dr. Cox as that rock. J.D. almost never succeeds alone. He can't. His flaws are filled in by his friends. J.D. is nerdy and awkward, but his best friend, Chris Turk, is the cool that J.D. wishes he had. And it's not just a matter of envy. It's not that J.D. can never have what Turk possesses so naturally. It's that Turk actually makes J.D. cooler just by being around. And in turn, Turk needs a little bit of J.D.'s neuroticism to keep him grounded, and J.D. needs that constant reminder that it's all good, and that someone has his back. As more characters come into the picture, we see J.D.'s network filling out even more. Dr. Cox does serve as a mentor, but not the hero kind, who comes in and then leaves after teaching the hero an important lesson, usually by dying. Instead, Dr. Cox sticks around. He's gruff and he hates the world, but slowly, over time, J.D.'s unflinching devotion actually breaks down his mentor's walls and helps bring him back to the world. Carla, for example, serves as J.D.'s constant reminder that working hard and being proud of what you are is more important than anyone else's judgment. She's always ready to cut down his arrogance when it creeps in and remind him about what's really important. J.D.'s friends and found family complete him in such a way that it's impossible to call him a hero. Even as he grows from a timid intern into a competent doctor, he's always searching for the best in people, trying to draw them into his circle. When it's time for him to pass on his own knowledge and become the authority figure, he even struggles with that and has to be reminded, both by his mentors and by his students, that not everyone is looking for the same things. 
He can't do it alone, but he can do it when he has his family around him. This is probably my personal favorite attempt of a heroine story in modern-ish media. If we go back just a little further, though, we have two excellent interrelated examples that highlight this contrast very clearly. I'm hoping, dear listener, that you are at least a bit familiar with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. If you're not, I suggest you become acquainted. It's a great show. Its related spinoff, Angel, is also pretty darn good on the whole, with a couple of unfortunate and disappointing deviations in the middle. So let's take a look at Buffy and Angel in the context of their respective shows. Credit where credit is due, a lot of the following was developed in conversation with my wife, Zoe Cannon, author and just brilliant thinker. You can find her on Twitter, at CannonZoe, or, you know, go find her books on Amazon. So first, Buffy. It'd be easy to think that Buffy is a heroine, right? I mean, she's got a great cast of friends around her, Xander and Willow and Giles, and even more beyond that. They're funny and snarky and a grand old time. And look at Angel. He's a brooding loner, a vampire, who doesn't even really like people. He must be a hero. And that, dear listeners, is part of what I think makes these two shows so brilliant in ways I never even realized. Buffy looks like a heroine at first glance. I think it might be why, before it became a cult classic, it sort of got dismissed. Girl stuff. But when you dig into the stories of Buffy, what you find beneath the surface is undeniably a hero. Buffy starts with a broken family network. Her dad is gone, and she lost all of her standing when vampires attacked her high school in L.A., and she was forced to move. She was popular, a cheerleader. Now, she's an outcast. It looks like the start of a heroine story. The more I thought about this, the more I realized that this is a really strong bluff. Pretty quickly, though, it becomes clear that Buffy's friends aren't in her weight class. The supernatural threats they face are incredibly dangerous to humans. It is only Buffy's superpowers, her slayer strength, that can overcome them. Sure, the research is important and helps to save the day, but in the end, it is almost always Buffy and the monster one-on-one. The monster kicks her around until she grits her teeth, doubles down, and does the thing herself. A heroine is supposed to take comfort in her friends and receive her power from them, but Buffy doesn't. Her power is all within herself. When her friends are joking around, they're entertaining and comforting the audience, but Buffy herself just feels more and more alone. She talks about it constantly, especially early on, how she just wants to be normal. She wants to give up her life as a slayer and just talk about boys and shoes and whatever, to be with her friends, to be comforted by them. But she can't, because she is the only thing standing between the powerful evils and the end of the world, her, alone. The tragedy of Buffy is that she is a hero who wants to be a heroine. Now let's look at Angel. When the show begins, Angel has just come off a short stint of being dead. It got better. He's run off to L.A. to get away from everything because he and Buffy have realized that their romance is doomed. Angel begins alone, morose, and then the show makes it look like he's going to be the hero. He rescues a girl from some vampires looking very heroic. But then he has to escape because his vampiric bloodlust renders him a danger to everyone around him. We don't spend as much effort on the bluff here. In the very first episode, Angel tries to do things alone, and fails. It's a little awkward as the show finds its legs, 
but we quickly come to find that Angel needs others to fill his own failings. He has a tendency to showboat, to brood, to blunder blindly into things without thinking. He needs allies to fill these holes, and while he's drawn into it reluctantly, it ends up, on the whole, a funny and heartwarming show about the power of friendship and succeeding through reliance on one another. There are quite a few moments in the show that are very dark, but they're brought back to light again by Angel's allies. He's redeemed several times through their actions. When he's alone, he is weak, and he falls down, and he is lifted back up by those around him. The comedy of Angel is that he is a heroine who thinks he is a hero. Interesting contrast, right? Okay, so now we hopefully have our definitions down. The most important key contrast here is that a hero succeeds alone. They are the bulwark against the danger, against the darkness. They find the power in themselves. They alone hold the key to success. The heroine, on the other hand, finds success through her allies. She builds a new family after hers is broken, and the new one fulfills her, shores up her weaknesses, and everyone works together in synchrony to save the day. The heroine is the keystone of a whole structure that is the key to success. The hero alone, the heroine surrounded by friends and allies. That's where we should all be right now. So, what does this have to do with RPGs? How can we apply these lessons to the games we play? Well, I think that not only can we maybe bring more people to the table by understanding these structures, but we can also be more aware of the players we have today. We can explore and fulfill expectations and bring in new ones through this little journey of our own here. We'll talk about all that and more right after this break. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Welcome back, dear listener. It's time for the second half. We're now aware that the hero's journey, the foundation of probably 80 to 90% of what Hollywood has to offer us, has a counterpart, the heroine's journey. Our key defining difference is that a hero must find the power within themselves to succeed, where a heroine instead builds a found family of allies that all work together to succeed. A hero is dragged down by allies, who often serve as temptation to come away from the struggle. A heroine is lifted up by her allies, who shore up her resolve and are integral to success. You might be starting to see why D&D sometimes feels a little weird. Part 2. Application Tabletop RPGs are, sort of by necessity, a cooperative endeavor. There are, as always, some exceptions. But in your traditional model, you have a group of people with varying expectations, all gathered around a table, headed by somebody who calls themselves the Dungeon Master. Well, not so much anymore. 
Most of these people will have been steeped in the hero's journey for their entire lives, and so they're probably looking to embody a hero, someone who stands alone against the darkness, who rises up and finds the power in themselves to overcome what's threatening the world. Hey, who are these other guys? Right, because in D&D, there's a whole party standing over here who would also like to save the world, thank you very much. In fact, for most of them, they'd probably also like to do it alone. I think there's probably a story about that guy at every table. The one who rolled up the edgy loner rogue who was always wandering off to do things by himself. There's no doubt that sometimes these characters are played by trolls and jackasses, but I'm going to leave them aside for now. As I've considered the stories, there's a lens on this that I hadn't really thought about before. A lot of these edgy loner rogues are played by people who are newer to the hobby, and ones who don't necessarily understand the depths of the cooperative nature of the game. For the ones who genuinely don't know what they're getting into, and create a character designed to stand alone in the middle of a cooperative endeavor, that could be, at least partly, a function of how familiar we all are with the hero's journey. If you were raised by Hollywood, as so many of us are, could you really be blamed for thinking that a story about heroes and dragons and magic is all about a single hero overcoming the danger? But it isn't. D&D is a game of heroes set in sort of heroine situations, a group of characters that, on their own, could each be the hero of their very own novel or film. But they're stuck together by meta-conventions of the game of the need to have multiple people around the table in order to balance the game part of the game. I spent some time trying to figure out how all this started. I wondered if maybe the founders of D&D were possibly more inclined toward cooperation and heroine-esque stories, but after some consideration, I don't think that's it. D&D started out as an evolution of a miniature war game, and then evolved into a thin veil of exploration of dark and dangerous places, and hunting monsters, and crawling dungeons with your friends. Each character class had weaknesses so that they could not survive alone, because that's what the game demanded. If all of them could solve every problem on their own, it wouldn't make any sense from a game level. So by necessity, the characters in an old-school D&D party are sort of the limbs, the parts of a single hero. The party stands alone against the world, doing brave and heroic things that no one else could ever do. Uncovering ancient treasures, defeating legendary monsters. But none of them individually could really be called a whole. They're so tightly pigeonholed into their classes because they aren't meant to be individual heroes. They are the parts of a single hero. The fighter, the right arm, the strength. The thief, the feet and finesse. The wizard, the brains of the operation. This classic triad of fighter and rogue and mage forms, essentially, one complete hero. But it isn't really a heroine thing either, because these PCs don't have the other beats of that structure. Instead, the three pieces comprise one entity, the party as hero, which then goes out and does hero things because of the conventions of the game surrounding it. That has changed. With every new edition of D&D, PCs get more powerful and more complex, but they are simultaneously burdened by the expectations of the past. A 5th edition PC is probably strong enough to stand on their own, but then they're bound by the expectations of the game, and forced to cooperate with one another for reasons that even they don't understand. 
So enough history. What do we make of all of this with the tools we have today? I guess, as always, the answer is, that depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But let's assume that you're listening to this podcast because you want to tell better stories in your games, and you want all of your players to have experiences that they'll remember. Here's what I'm thinking. What if we, both as players and game masters, asked ourselves this question about every player character in each one of our games? What does victory look like to this character? To elaborate, when each character hits a shining moment that they consider a win, are they A. Standing alone, having persevered with the power which they alone are given, or B. Standing with one or more allies, having played a crucial role in the win. This tells us broadly whether the character is inclined more toward hero or heroine. It's not perfect, and there's a lot of wiggle room, but it puts us in the ballpark, so to speak. It has some similarities to the divide in a combat-heavy story or game between characters who like to go in for the kills and glory and the ones who stand back and play support with buffs and heals to give their allies a chance to shine. If we want to tell stories with our RPGs, what we will end up having to do to ensure that everyone has their place and gets the victories that please them is to create an ensemble story. This means that each of our PCs is, individually, the main character of their own part of the story. These stories intertwine quite tightly, and more so than most ensemble stories, because of the necessity of being in such close proximity. But we should remember that each one has their own point-of-view chapters, if you will. Each of these PCs has a critical lens of their own on the story and we should do our best to present complications and situations that lend themselves to fulfilling each PC's victory conditions. Now, what this might mean is a little more buy-in from your players. If you really want to please a hero, you're going to have to put them in a situation in the story that only that hero can solve, and not just solve one piece of, but have the ultimate resolution for. You might have to, and I know this is heresy, split up the party sometimes. Give them a situation that can't be solved with them all standing five feet away from each other. One of the heroes might have to do something only they can do. A heroine character might be using her skills to coordinate two other heroes on exactly what they need to do. Another heroine might be gathering up a bunch of NPC allies to push through on a separate front. Split them up. Highlight their strengths. Give the heroines NPCs to build on and ally with alongside their party members. Give the heroes NPC entanglements that get in their way while they're trying to do the thing alone. Or reverse it. Bait a heroine into splitting off from the group and offer some new companions to help her out of it. Back a hero into a corner where he's so out of his depth that he has to make a desperate attempt at something he's not great at in order to succeed. Make the situations complicated, and play to the declared strengths and weaknesses of the characters, as defined by your players. Is that going to be tough? <laughs> you better believe it's going to be tough. But I actually think that understanding this might be the key to drawing in some of those peripheral folks around us, who look at our hobby with sort of wide-eyed bewilderment. What do they get out of that, anyway? Some of these people may not see themselves in these games, and maybe, just maybe, 
By understanding that there is more than one way to tell a story, we can unlock something that's missing in our relentless pursuit of magic weapons and gold pieces. And maybe, maybe we can get a few more people to stick around at the table. Thanks so much for joining me today. Before we go, one quick thing. If you're enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, on Podchaser, or tweet us, at TumbleDie. I'll read any new reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDie Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, the interludes are Clockwork, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vince Vept. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash vincevept, V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Additional music by Andre Sitkov and Andy Ray. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Kylan Wigan. I'm a damsel. I'm in distress. I can handle this. Have a nice day. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.